Well, welcome again. You showed up late. Welcome. It's good to have you. Better late than never, as they say. Oh, we get to be in God's Word right now, and that is a good place to be. I'd like to start us off by asking a question. Who is this man? Everyone knows this man, right? Everybody knows him. If you're over the age of 30, even younger people know this man. This is the man with the song. This is the man with the smile. It's the man who is so dedicated to feeding his fish, who every time he comes into his house changes his shoes He's the man with that magical trolley that transported many of us to that wonderful world, that land of make-believe. You remember the show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was a show that taught us that we are special. A show that taught us that we matter. A show that taught us the value of kindness and appreciating the unique qualities in each other. Mr. Rogers tried to teach me that being a part of a neighborhood was a really, really special thing. But I've got to tell you that as long as I have had neighbors, I have been agitated, (laughs) frustrated, Many times angry. I get angry when they blast their loud music. I get angry when that cigarette smoke wafts over the wall. I get angry when their motorhomes or their trailers are parked right in front of my house for weeks on end. I'm angry when they scream obscenities at 1 a.m. and it comes reverberating through the apartment walls into my toddler's bedroom. I'm angry when they intentionally decide to get up on a ladder to work on their second story just so that they can spy on my four-year-old's backyard birthday party. I'm angry, and my face turns as red as Mr. Rogers' sweater. And I begin dreaming up ways to retaliate. Not that I was going to follow through on any of those, but I dream, dare to dream. And I I don't think I'm alone in that. Some of you have been there before. There was once a time when front doors were left unlocked, maybe even open. There was once a time when plates of cookies were left to welcome newcomers to the block. There was once a time when you didn't need every tool in your garage or every ingredient on your pantry shelf because you knew there was someone right next door who you could borrow it from at a moment's notice. That's what they're there for. What are neighbors for? There was once a time when neighbors were more likely to be friends and allies rather than threats and enemies. Now, we've been told to love our neighbors, right? It's not just a suggestion. It's not not just a good thing to do. It's a command. But there are always exceptions, right? (laughs) I mean, come on. There are always exceptions. What about those people who, who don't love me back? What about those who have beliefs that are are not just different than mine, they are opposed to my beliefs? What about those who are in favor of taking away my freedoms, or maybe they've taken advantage of me? What about those whose lives are just marked by narcissism, and they don't give a rip for their fellow human being? 
What about those who come from just drastically different backgrounds? They've embraced ideologies or adopted identities that I know that aren't in line with God's word. Or what about those who are just, just different? They're just so different. They're in a different life stage or different haircut, different anything, different everything. And to associate that with them would just make other people go, eh, that's a little weird. Why is he or she hanging out with them? Kind of makes me wonder. The people of Israel had neighbors. As we walk through our passage in the Gospel of Mark this morning, we see Jesus taking his disciples on a little trip next door to visit the neighbors. And we're just going to dive right into it. And we're going to see what that means for us here in 2020. 21. In Mark chapter 7, verse 24, it says this, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Let's just pause right there for a second. After spending time in Gennesaret, which is on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, he was telling people there, remember this, that it's not just on the outside that counts, it's what's under the hood that really matters. After that, Jesus travels northwest to a region called Tyre and Sidon. It's, it's where uh, the land of Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon. This was a beautiful and prosperous place on the Mediterranean Sea. And it still is today. It's, an, it's, an, it's incredible. Not a bad place to get away for some, for, for some R&R. We here on the coast, we know what what pictures of that are like we, we get to experience it. It's just a wonderful thing to, to look out at the sea, watch the sunset. It's amazing. What a great place. But at the same time, to a Jewish person, this would have been the land of the others. A, a land with the people of whom we do not associate. It's the land of the Gentiles. And not only was this the land of the Gentiles, it was the land of the wealthy elites. A place that years and years before had been decimated by the Assyrians. They came in during the, prophet, during the time of the prophet Isaiah. They swooped down from the north. They laid waste to all the Jews living there. And then they left behind their own people to occupy it. And that's why this place came to be known as the Galilee of the Gentiles. And that burned. That stung in the hearts and the minds of Israel. Not only had this land been stolen away, but the people living there, they, they continually made it their practice to gain from the, the, the hard work and, and the loss of other people, namely Israel. Back in Joel 3.5, God says of Tyre and Sidon, for you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their border. 
taking advantage of others, hurting others. In Acts 12, 20, King Herod, you remember him? He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon because they were grabbing up all of the bread and all of the food that was produced in Galilee. The attitude, the thought must have been, why should, why should we work so hard for them? So that they can just grab it all up, snatch it all up, enjoy the good life, and prosper? The vibes had gone bad. They had been bad for a long, long time. And that's where Jesus goes, and that's where something happens. And that's why we're reading it today. Verse 25. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now Jesus had encountered unclean spirits before, right? An unclean spirit, that's just a nice way of saying demon-possessed. That, that was nothing new for Jesus and his disciples. It shouldn't have been a surprise to them, knowing they're going into this land. Well, of course, there's going to be some of that there. Phoenicia was a pagan place. It was known for paganism, the worship of false gods. And that shouldn't have been surprising. Okay, we've seen Jesus do this before. Let's see what he does here. Ah, but there's something that would have been surprising something that would have been absolutely shocking, and that is that Jesus would even speak to this woman. Why? She has three strikes against her. The first one is she's a woman. Now, we know that respect and dignity that is that is given to women in our day, it has not been that way for much of human history. Even though God created them male and female, he created them equally in his image with equal value. Wandering away from God has resulted in all kinds of, of poor thinking and poor practice, things that aren't right. The poor treatment of women, the disrespect, the dishonor throughout history, throughout the ages that's one of the things that sin has distorted in our world. And yet even today, we're not scoring very well on this as women are objectified, over-sexualized, pornography's rampant. We're not doing that great today either. In Jesus' day, women had little value. They weren't respected. They couldn't testify in a court of law. Why? Because who's going to believe a woman? Really? When this woman approached Jesus, people must have been really curious. What's he going to do? Because they knew full well that culturally speaking, he didn't need to give her the time of day just because she was a woman. In the parallel account, Matthew 15, we see the disciples actually saying, send her away. For she's crying out after us. Get rid of her, Jesus. She's just bothering us. 
She was a woman. Secondly, she was a Gentile. Not only did she have her gender working against her, she was a Gentile. If she had been a Jew, the disciples would have at least thought, okay, well, she's a descendant of Abraham's line. She's a child of God, so she deserves a little respect, a little bit of dignity. But she's not. She's a Gentile. She's one of the unclean. And everyone knew of the divide in the relationship between Gentiles and Jews. This woman had a lot of nerve to approach Jesus. How dare she? Third strike, she was a Syrophoenician. Oh, we already talked about what the Phoenicians did. She was not only a woman, not only a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, one of those people that had taken and continue to take from the Jews. Add all those things up and we realize that for her to approach this Jewish man with a request, it was absolutely audacious. Audacious for her to do this. But despite all of that, at her core, she's a mom. She's a mom whose daughter was being ravaged by this thing inside of her. It's something that no doctors, no holy men, no offering to, to any of the gods could remedy. She was desperate. What was Jesus going to do for this woman? Apparently nothing at first. Matthew tells us when she approached and started begging that Jesus was just silent. That's odd. Jesus, I thought you cared. Was he silent because he was conflicted? Was he silent because he, he had to process this and figure out, okay, how am I going to approach this? How, what are we going to do here? Or maybe did he have some other reason? After his disciples begged him to get rid of her, he says in Matthew 15, 24, he, an he answers and says this, I was sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where's Jesus going with this? Well, it, it's true. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Bible points out time and time again that Jesus came first for the Jewish people. He was their Messiah. They were God's children. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. Deuteronomy 14.1, Moses says to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, Paul recognized that it would come first to the Jews. Romans 1.16, many of you know this by heart. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. He goes on in Romans 2.9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. But the glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. There was an order in which God intended to unleash the blessing of that epic promise that he made to Abraham. It was going to be offered to the Jew first. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And he says it again, this time in the form of a very, very short parable. In Mark 7, 27, he says to the woman, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ooh, 
that doesn't sit very well. The cultural cultural divide, once again, it's very clear that it is deep, deep, and wide. We don't call people dogs today, do we? You don't do that. Actually, when you think about it, people love their dogs, don't they? On Amazon Prime, I keep getting this this advertisement for this dog show, and I just go, what is going on here? They're taking them on adventures. They're going on helicopter rides. They're jumping, bungee jumping. They're doing all kinds of crazy stuff with their dogs. Dogs are so endeared by so many people, and I heard someone clap in here. You're in here, aren't you? You went, yeah. Chris, you? Really? All right, we'll talk. As much as we love dogs, we love dogs, and they're part of our families. Maybe someday, you know, calling someone a dog is going to be just a, it's going to be a compliment. What up, dog? <laughs> but in Jesus' day, there was a word for dog that was used as a slam. A slam against Gentiles. It was a word that basically meant mongrel. It was that street rat kind of dog that hunted in packs and rummaged through garbage for its food. Just kind of, ugh. I look at that thing and I go, ugh. (laughs) But there was another word for dog, a different word that Jesus, and that's the word that Jesus uses here. It's the word that refers to that domesticated family pet right? Even I have a a little spot in my heart for that, but they change. They get bigger and they, oh, they smell. The word that Jesus used for dog here, it's that family pet. It's a little puppy that sits under the the table and and grabs up the crumbs as the the family's eating. You know, your your three-year-old pulls the broccoli and sticks it down there, and then even the dog won't eat it. His point, Jesus' point, was not that this woman was some type of gutter trash. His point was that what he had to offer, the food that he came to bring, it wasn't first for people like her. It was for the children of Israel. The woman knew that. She knew it. And what she says next shows her incredible understanding and humility. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now this is an amazing statement. And this... I believe, is the reason that Jesus was silent at first. And this is the reason that he said, I came first for the house of Israel, or only for the house of Israel. And this is the reason he gives that short parable. It's because he wanted to tease out of her, to bring her to this place where she makes this statement so that his disciples can hear it and be astonished by it. He wanted to completely blow apart any preconceived notions that the Gentiles were hopelessly lost. That they could never be a part of his forever family. She says, 
Yes, Lord. What? This wasn't her Lord. This wasn't the Gentiles. Lord, she was a Gentile. The Jewish religious leaders and people from Jesus' own hometown, they didn't recognize who Jesus was. And yet here was this pagan, a woman who understands going on here what's the deal she says even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs so she knows the messiah jesus the messiah was not first for her but that didn't mean that non-jews wouldn't be blessed by him her response actually seems to tell us that she knew something of the old testament she knew something of the abrahamic covenant she knew that all, through israel all the families of the earth would be blessed she also knew that jesus didn't owe her anything yeah jesus you, you said i'm, I'm like you know, the little puppy under the table yeah i'm not going to argue that I know who I am. She doesn't argue. She doesn't tell her, no, 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 I really am deserving. See, you should really help me because of X, Y, and Z. And she humbly perseveres and begs Jesus to deliver her daughter. And that's when Jesus gives her the greatest compliment that so many people, even his disciples, failed to receive. Mark writes this in, in verse 29. He said to her, for this statement... The statement you just made, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Matthew makes it a little bit clearer. And he records Jesus saying, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. How many times did Jesus point out the lack of faith of his disciples or other people? How many times? And yet here, in this most unlikely person, he and his disciples, they encounter an exceptional faith. A faith that recognizes who Jesus is. It sees that that. that their needs can only be met in him, and that anything Jesus might do is completely undeserved. That's the kind of faith, that is great faith, and it comes from the most unlikely of people. Is it possible that there is someone in your life that God is preparing and giving that unlikely great faith? Is it possible that God might be preparing the heart of someone you least expect to receive the good news of Jesus Christ? It's possible. Leaving the area, Jesus and his disciples, they traveled to another area that was predominantly populated by Gentiles. Southeast of the Sea of Galilee, you see the sea right there, was the region known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. And that's where they have, Jesus and his disciples, have a man brought to them who couldn't hear and his speech was impaired. Back in the day, if you couldn't hear, there was no therapy to help you learn how to speak. There was nothing like that. Maybe you, you grunted, maybe you moaned, 
but you certainly couldn't form coherent syllables so that others could understand you. People with this kind of handicap, they were viewed by others as mentally ill. Something wrong with that guy. Look, look, he can't even talk. Worse, the Jews considered it a sign of judgment. God's judgment. This person must have done something really, really bad to deserve that. Once again, Jesus is face-to-face with a person whom others would have shunned. What's Jesus going to do? Verse 33. This seems really strange to us, but it makes perfect sense. After taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, this is one of those verses that I loved when I was younger. (laughs) And after spitting, touched his tongue. Little bizarre. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said, let's see if I can pronounce this. Ephath the I don't know if I can get it. Ephatha. That is be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Now this is is weird. You're putting your fingers in somebody's ear. Is that a wet willy kind of thing? Jesus, what are you doing? You're spitting here. Did you just turn back into a junior higher? I don't know what's going on. This is so strange, Jesus. But not if you were the man who couldn't hear. No, no, no. Jesus was speaking a language that this man could understand, a kind of sign language here. By touching his ears and his tongue, the man understood that Jesus knew what the problem was. He knew immediately. By spitting, the man knew that Jesus intended to do something about it because spitting back then, saliva, was believed to have some type of healing properties. Jesus is communicating, I'm going I'm to bring healing to you. By looking up to heaven, the man knew where Jesus' power came from. And by sighing, Jesus made it abundantly clear. He cared for this man's agony that he had endured, we don't know how long, it may have been since he was a child, maybe from birth, and Jesus cared. These gestures communicated a powerful message to this man, and then it worked. It worked. And the man could not only all of a sudden hear, but immediately his brain understood the language And not only that, his tongue was given the muscle memory needed to form words correctly. This is incredible. This is awesome what is happening here. Now, what's very interesting, we've been going back and forth from Matthew to Mark, Matthew to Mark, Matthew to Mark. This is encapsulated in a way in Matthew's account. But you know what? It's lumped into all sorts of other miracles. Matthew just lists off. He healed the blind, the lame, the mute. And that's all he mentions. But Mark chooses to go into detail here. And we have to ask, why? What are you doing, Mark? Why is this miracle so important? We've seen Jesus do miracles before. It's just just another another one of those where you're reading through one of the Gospels. Okay, okay, he healed people again and again and again and again. Okay, we get it. We get it. Okay, Jesus healed a lot of people. Mark's doing something here. Could it be 
that everything zeroes in on one single word, that that's where the, the significance lies here. There is a word that Mark uses here that is only used one other time in the whole Bible. It's that word for the speech impediment, the word for mute. It's a word that connects this passage to something the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 35. Let's look it up on the screen. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an ancient heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And Mark connects the two together with a single word. Because that word is the same. Mark wants us to see that the promise of blessing to spill out beyond Israel and onto the peoples of the world, that's happening now. This is incredible. We go to that familiar Christmas passage in Isaiah 9. It says this, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Guess where the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is. It's right there. It's, this is where Jesus is. This is no accident, friends. No accident. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy, and at the same time, he's blowing the minds of his disciples, that the, letting them know the gospel isn't just for you. It's for others. It's for those neighbors out there that you just can't Stand. It's for those people who are so clearly walking in darkness, blind to the truth, just neck deep in the muck of their sin. Who are those people in your life? Jesus showed amazing compassion to this poor deaf man. Are there people in your life who are forgotten? Who are despised by everyone else. They need their souls touched by the awesome, redeeming, and transforming power of the gospel. Chapter 8 tells us that a great crowd gathered. 
Much like the crowds that had gathered in, in the Jewish areas, now it's happening in the Gentile areas. And Jesus says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered by essentially saying something like, the only way these people are going to get fed in this place, Jesus, is if you do something like you did for that, those 5,000 plus back then. Remember the 12 baskets? Yeah, you're going to have to do something like that for these guys. And that's when Jesus has them bring what they have. The fish, the bread, the, just a few little pieces of food here. And he gives thanks for it. They distribute it, everyone eats, to their hearts content. They're satisfied. And Jesus said before, I am the bread of life. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Of course, he was talking about something more than just physical nourishment. For this is the will of my Father, he, he says in verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh what they didn't realize, but they were only now beginning to see was that this life-giving bread was not just for their own people. It's not just for us. It's to be shared with the neighbors. Shared with those who are hungry outside of our family. As some 4,000 Gentile people ate to their heart's content, content. Jesus gave his disciples a picture of the true life-giving bread that would be available for the peoples of the world when his body would soon be offered up on the cross. Really, Jesus? Even these people? Even these awful neighbors, these people who, who are walking in darkness, they don't not only walk in darkness, they love darkness. Say it ain't so, Jesus. Oh, it be so. It be so. Thank God it be so. Because the reality is, most of us in this room are those people. It's us people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, children of wrath, people who lived on the other side of the fence. Just like that, that other woman who had nothing but liabilities to bring to Jesus. Just like that, that other deaf man who had no ability to even understand Jesus without Jesus having make it plain to him through that strange sign language. Just like the other crowd who would have surely died from hunger trying to make it back home. We were the others 
And if that's the case, then why is it that we are sometimes reluctant to have compassion on those who are just like the way we were before we first tasted the bread of life. Not only that, considering how frequently we are the recipients of God's patience, his kindness, his grace, his compassion, when we fail, time and time and time again to measure up or be the people that Christ rescued us to be, how can we refuse to offer a little patience and a little compassion to those who do not yet even understand their need for Jesus? Who are those in your life that you have yet to show the patience, the compassion, the hope of Christ. They're out there. We like to get angry at them. We like to point fingers. We like to talk about them to each other and say, can you believe this guy? Scottish theologian penned this, uh, this prayer that I'm about to read back in the mid-20th century. Bob Lazier actually shared this with me this week. It goes like this. Holy God, I've dedicated my soul and life to you, yet I lament before you that I'm still so inclined to sin, so reluctant to obey so attached to what makes me feel good, so neglectful of spiritual things, so quick to gratify my body, so slow to nourish my soul, so greedy for present delight, so indifferent to lasting blessing, so fond of being lazy, so unprepared to work, so soon at play, so delayed at prayer, so quick to look after myself, so slow to look after others, so eager to get, so reluctant to give, so confident in my claims, so low in my performance, so full of good intentions, so unwilling to fulfill them, so harsh with those around me, so indulgent with myself, so eager to find fault, so resentful when others find fault with me so unfit for great tasks, so unhappy with small ones, so helpless without you, and yet so unwilling to be tied to you. Oh, merciful God, forgive me yet again. Hear this sad account of my failings, and in your great mercy, blot it out of your memory. Give me faith to lay hold of your perfect holiness and to rejoice in the righteousness of Christ my Savior. Grant that resting on his goodness and not my own, I may become more like him, so that my will may be united with his in obedience to yours. All this I ask for his holy name's sake. Amen. As we prepare to take this bread that represents the bread of life. This juice 
that represents his cleansing blood. May that be our prayer. The bread represents Christ's body. It was given for you, for me. It was sacrificed for us. This should have been us, but it was him. Because he came not only for the ones he came to first, he also stepped into the realms, the lands of darkness. He came for us. Lord, we, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We were the far off, and you came near. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. Let's take this together. The juice in this little cup it represents Christ's blood. Blood that should not have been shed for us, and yet it was. Shed for us, and shed for many people who don't even know they need it right now. Let's take it, celebrating what Christ has done for us, and prayerfully considering who we might point towards it this week. Let's take it together. Our Lord, we, uh, we are astounded. And we recognize, Lord, that we, we very often are not like that, that mother. Our faith is not great. We doubt all the time. We fail constantly. When it comes to sharing the hope that we have with our neighbors, Lord, that is something that we miss all the time. Lord, would you give us hearts of compassion? Would you give us minds that remind us of where we came from and the goodness that you have shown to us, Lord? May we be witnesses to that goodness your compassion, to your patience, Lord, and may we faithfully represent you well, even as we look over that hedge or over the fence, or that person who's still parked in front of our yard. <laughs> and Lord, may we be praying that they too come to a point where they find their everything in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.